Facebook. Thank you all so much for tuning in to Pop Investments. And I have my co-hosts back with me. I have John, Tosh, and Brian. And today we're going to talk about excellence. But we're also, these are what I call men of excellence. So they're going to showcase what they do. They're going to talk about their fraternities and brotherhood. They're also going to talk about how they deal with mental health. Um, we're going to talk about business. So this is going to be a great, great discussion tonight. So thank you all so much for tuning in. And don't forget to share and like um, if this beats you. So thank you all so much for joining. Okay. So I just want everyone to just give a little brief description of yourself. I think you all, all are all involved in fraternities. You're a part of fraternity. So please tell us um, a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'll start it off. Um, my name's John. Uh, I'm from Albany, Georgia. I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, uh, A506. Um, and y'all don't know this, but I smell really good. I, I just want to tell you guys that you can't you can't smell it through the TV, but I just want you to, to know that I smell good. Um, I was born and raised in Albany, um, left Albany to, to go pursue my graduate degree in biology, and then decided I wanted to come back to Albany and contribute to Albany what was contributed to me. Um, I wanted to make sure that Albany had quality and excellence coming back uh, to try to help raise the next generation and so forth. And so uh, we'll get into some of the things that uh, align with that as we finish this conversation, but I'm happy to be here. And um, greetings everyone again. Hello, my name is Brian. I too am also from Albany, Georgia, a proud member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated um i work in education middle school education ctae specifically um i'm just happy to be back uh with these young brothers right here who i admire uh my name is tar severe uh, originally from springfield massachusetts uh but i've been in this great city of albany uh over 30 years so this is definitely home um uh, i am also a part of one of these wonderful brotherhoods and blue is blue is such a beautiful color the sky is blue you know it's just i mean oh man it's just to be blue five beta sigma baby so uh i love the organization i love what it stands for um i love the diversity that you see in its membership um and i just overall wanted to be a part of something that was doing something so good and turning the world around. Um, so that's kind of what I do. I thank you all so much. I'm not in a sorority, but my dad is an alpha. Okay. He, he went to Albany State. So um, I understand your service and the things that you all do. I saw my dad mentor when I was in middle school. Um, I saw him pick up a young man and that was his mentee and he took care of him. So I, I appreciate you all. And we're going to highlight you all tonight. One of the things I want to talk about you all, and this has kind of steered our conversation, but what's going on in the news um, is Stephen um, Boss, aka Twitch from Ellen, he allegedly took his own life. And there have been so many questions and so many, it's, it's sparked a debate about even Black men and Black men and your mental health. So first of all, I want to ask, um, well, it's a two-part, maybe three-part um, question, how are you all doing mentally? And then I also want to talk about how you own your mental health 
What do you do to make sure that you maintain your mental health? Anyone can start. Well, I'll go ahead and start this off. Uh, first of all, my heart goes out to Twitch's family, his uh, loved ones, the millions of fans who um, have been a, who really rocked with him and were affected by this. Um, it's a truly, truly, truly tragic situation. Um, my mental health is okay right now, but I can honestly admit there are some days when it's not okay. Um, a while back when my mom died, back in 2016, uh, for a few years, I really had a, a huge struggle, was going to deep, dark places um, and things like that. And so uh, I went through therapy. Um, I did therapy for like two years, uh, which has really helped me out a lot. I learned a lot about myself in that time. Uh, some things that, you know, I wasn't really, I was, it was hard to accept about myself. Um, but, you know, one of the things I do is, you know, I have a very strong spiritual background in the Lord. Um, I have a very supportive and encouraging wife. And we have cur incur uh, courageous conversations. And um, I try to focus on, you know, what's lovely. <clears throat> you know, in the scripture, Paul um, urged us that whatever is lovely, think on these things. And I really try to do that every day. But it's hard and it's difficult. But I'm also very transparent. If you ask me how I'm doing. I am going to tell you straight up how I am doing. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. If you ask it, I'm going to answer the question. Um, I don't do uh, pointless small talk and pleasantry. So, you know, if you really don't want to know, you really don't care to know, don't ask me because I'm going to tell you. Um, and that's the truth. Also, too, I have, you know, some trusted few friends I'm able to talk to and bounce things off of. But I'm 100% authentic um, is how I'm feeling. I'm never going to be one to, to try to act like everything is perfect. Um, and I have days where I struggle. Um, but I try to put some things in place support-wise around me to kind of help me, you know, kind of try to find the positive and, and things like that. But, you know, life is real. And it comes at you hard. It comes at you unexpectedly. You have to first admit and own that. Um, and then after that, and just be real with yourself. Uh, I think sometimes a lot of people – try to put on the side or put on the front. I'm not one for that. And if you've ever followed me closely on Facebook, you can tell some posts I post are very, very happy lifting. And some posts like I posted yesterday, you know, I can get a little snippy if I'm irritated or whatever. But I also do that just because I know there's someone out there who's struggling with something similar. And so a lot of times I'm hoping that my transparency about what my struggle is will help someone else realize they're not alone. Because what you find out is if you talk to other people, you find out that some of the things that you're going through, other people have gone through or are going through it too. You're not alone, but when you're at well, the time you're going through it, you might be feeling like it's just esoteric to you and your situation. And what I learned even through therapy is that's not really the case. However, um, just try to put things in place to keep my mind. Because the mind is the mind is a muscle, you know, how you, you know, and also to your soul, whatever you feed it. You know, that's what's going to come out. So you just got to be careful what you take in. Um, but just being honest and upfront about it and just keeping people around you who you know for a fact uh, have your best interests at heart, who you know for a fact uh, won't trivialize what you're going through. Because sometimes I think, I'll say this, sometimes you want to kind of talk to people and you want to put give them that trust and you want to be vulnerable, but then they'll say or do something that lets you know they kind of judge you a little bit, so then you pull back. Um, especially um black men. Um, and we'll talk about that some of the show too. It's very hard for us to be 
um, vulnerable. But I'm an advocate for creating these safe spaces for everybody, but especially black men, because I'm a black man, to be able to, you know, be vulnerable and be transparent and get the support that you need. Thank you so much. You know, I'll, I'll jump in along with what Brian is sharing. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I, I lost my son um, during the pregnancy and it was uh, and it was tough. That was my first time actually losing someone as an adult that I that I was so close to, particularly because that was going to be John the third. He was he was my little man. And every every guy loves the idea of a little him running around. You know what I mean? Um, and so it was at that point that I realized that I never had to really deal with my mental health or I never proactively dealt with my mental health. Um, for the year after that, I was always angry. I was upset. Everything stressed me. And it took me going to therapy, right? It took me going to therapy. My doctor recommended a therapist here in Albany to go and, and talk to him. And what was interesting, I'm, I'm going to tell you what was really interesting. The guy that he sent me to was a, was a drug addiction therapist, okay? Now, I've never used drugs except caffeine, and that's rare. <laughs> but, you know, I've never used drugs. And so when he said it's a drug addiction the therapist, I was like, oh, let's see what happens. But what it is is drug addiction therapy um, focuses on, or his particular type of therapy focuses on making a person feel whole, having them understand what they're trying to fill in, what gaps they're trying to fill in so they can feel whole. And what I realized was there was nothing about me that caused his death. There was nothing about, there was nothing I could have done to make it better. And those were the things that was weighing on me. Did I not raise enough hell at the hospital? Should I have slapped the doctor to get some, some better service? You know, what are the things that I could have done? And the bottom line was I couldn't have. And he helped me to see that. But he also helped me to see the beauty in the process up to the up to that point, what it brought out of me, the ability to love, the ability to love something that I haven't even received yet. You know what I mean? And that was the point when I started recognizing that therapy is valid. Uh, therapy in whatever way you have to seek it is valid, but you can't let it just sag like a heavy load and eventually explode, right? You have to address it head on. And so that's what I've been trying to do um, last couple of years. Uh, today, I'm feeling feeling really good. Uh, last couple of years, there have been some ups and downs, but I do two things, really. One, if I don't talk to anybody else, I talk to myself, right? When I'm in the car by myself, I don't just leave it up here. I actually verbalize it, get it out as if I'm talking to someone because just that little bit helps me feel like someone is hearing me. Even if it's going into the space, even if it's going into the ether, even if it's going up to God's ears, somebody is hearing me. And that that's that that honestly takes a lot of stress off of me. I fight, fuss, and argue in my car by myself when I'm driving to work or whatever, but it helps me clear my mind on a lot of things. And then two, people who... If I feel as though you're going to judge where I am, uh, my manhood, my ability to cope, whatever it is, because I don't fall into how you think I should, I just don't go around you. I, I, there are a lot of people that I just don't deal with anymore, and they don't know why I don't deal with them, but I just kind of cut, cut that loose because I'm not going to allow someone to throw out the manhood card or, or challenge my manhood and essentially keep me quiet when it's time for me to express who I am and what I'm dealing with. So um, 
So that's how I've been trying to own it over the last couple of years. And it's worked. I, I, I'm not perfect with it, but I'm definitely better than I was in 2015. So. Awesome. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> just to piggyback off of, I guess, you know, the conversation so far, um, just a mental health check in today is a good day. I'm feeling good. I feel inspired, uh, uh, prosperous and, you know, moving in that direction. But uh, I also went through a similar situation as John uh, losing a child uh, right up and right before pregnancy. Um, and my wife was, you know, on birth control and we had kind of put that idea of adding to the family kind of out of the way uh, for several reasons, because she has rough pregnancies anyway. And, uh, you know, we're both getting up to an age where we kind of want to, you know, slide down the slope and enjoy life, you know, at our own pace. And but it was something that I always wanted in my heart still, even though, you know, we were aging and our work schedules were complicated. I still always was like, man, I would, what if I had one more child? Because, um, you know, the children that we have are pretty dope. Um, so I was looking forward to that. And. Like I said, my wife was on birth control. So when it happened, when she came home pregnant, it was like, wow, like, God, you really gave me a, another chance, even under these circumstances. And, you know, my wife saw like the, the, the light bulb in my heart that went off when she told me. So when we were in the room waiting on the doctor to come back in and kind of tell us what was going on at one of these uh, random appointments, um, her biggest thing was I saw you develop into a whole nother person in my mind and anticipating being an even better father uh, from the things that I've learned along the journey. So it was heartbreaking for us. And it was one of those things, you know, women know a lot more about what goes on in the doctor's office. So when it was taking a little too long for the nurse to come back in and then it took a little longer for the doctor to get there, she was kind of like, I'm kind of worried. And it was like, God, this can't be happening to me. So it was like, you know, I remember those moments like it was yesterday. And so that that process after that, when you're asking God, why? How did this happen? I thought this was that moment when you were like giving me what I've been praying for and for all of that to be snatched away. And you really don't have answers until much later, like your soul doesn't settle with, OK, God, for whatever reason. Uh, you allowed these things to happen. But in that moment, it's just like John was saying, you're irritated. It's like you've got to find somebody to blame, including yourself. And you just kind of go back and forth with that, back and forth with that. And that was kind of like I've had some mental health challenges throughout my life, you know, things that were unexpected. But I think as a, an adult at the age I was, that was like one of those big punches. Like, well, I didn't see this coming at all. Um, so it, it really kind of interrupted my my emotional health for uh, quite some time and even to this point the thought of it is kind of like let's give you that like wow uh but since then god has blessed me with the grandchild and i have another one on the way so i'm kind of vicariously living that experience that way and you know just being thankful for the opportunity to be in be a part of my family be a part of my grandkids lives you know, helping my children through their maturation. So, uh, like I said, today I'm good. And, you know, everything is kind of lining up 
But mental health is, is a strong area that we need more discussions like this because men suffer in silence because juxtaposed to our strength, there is equal vulnerability but when we function on the side of strength most of the time, there's only some far up that path we feel comfortable walking, uh, knowing that at any moment we could have to go all the way left again to, you know, be the strong protector. So it's already a hard ask for men. And one of the things that happens is you sometimes even the women that we, we love and cherish uh, don't have a space for that to accept the, the duality of what our experience is. And when we try to be vulnerable, if that doesn't go right, we just don't like to fight battles that we don't choose. So, you know, if it's like this never kind of works out, men will suffer in silence and just kind of internalize all of that. So this is something that we definitely should, you know, put a lot of thought into it and a lot of, a uh, lot more of these type videos that really kind of put that on the forefront because there are so many men that are struggling with no voice and they're sad to say talking to themselves in some cases reinforcing that feeling of inadequacy that it seems like is all around us i heard um something on i think it was instagram and the guy it was a poem or something he was like imagine what it feels like to be a black man and everywhere you go you're feared mm -hmm. That's a lot of PTSD. And, and, and when you think about it, I mean, down to other ethnicities, other, you know, our counterparts, women uh, of all cultures, uh, businesses, police, uh, city officials, lawyers, attorneys. You know, there's, uh, there's this overarching air of I wonder if he's going to go black man on me. You know, and it's like think about every everywhere we go and everything we do, we have to adjust our our everything, our aura and our energy to be able to constantly interact with that feeling and still find a normal in there somewhere. That's deep. And I, I'm tonight, I'm, I'm going to ask the questions, but you all, I want to hear the conversation because hearing you all, I mean, that is deep. And I always say being a Black man is hard. I believe that. And I know that from you getting into the elevator with someone. And like you said, they're, you see them tense up or even going into an interview and you see people tense up. I've seen it. I've been on interview panels and I've seen people tense up when a Black man walks in the room. Um, Brian, and, and I want you all, because I want to talk a little bit more about this, and then I promise we are going to highlight you all, but the great thing about this is this shows how you all are excellent, because you all are sharing your stories, and I had no idea that you would share in the depth that you're sharing, but this helps other people, and that's what I learned about being, doing lives. It's a lot of people that you touch, that watch, and they might not say anything, but then they might inbox you and like, thank you so much for that discussion. So you all are helping free other people. And just by sharing your stories, I promise you, you're healing someone. Someone needs to hear this um, today. I know, Brian, you mentioned about safe space and Black men having a space, safe space. And you're going to mention about this sports ordeal that I have no idea about. I want you to talk about that. So, so earlier this week, I kind of went, by the time I posted about it, I had sanitized it, but I kind of went on a tirade. Earlier this week, There was I watched the show Undisputed. Um, with Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp. For those of you who don't know, uh, Skip Bayless is a longtime 
uh, debate, sports personality, and somewhat agitator. Um, he used to be on first tape with Stephen A. Smith. Then he got his own show, Undisputed, on Fox Sports Network. And Shannon Sharp has been his co-host. They've been doing the show the past six years. Shannon Sharp, um, who is a Hall of Fame NFL player, won three Super Bowls, um, graduated from HBCU, Savannah State, from Hinesville, Georgia, Nasdaq, right? So they were talking about Tom Brady, debating about Tom Brady, and Skip loves himself some Tom Brady. And a lot of times in these debates, when Shannon's trying to prove to Skip that Tom is playing poorly, um, Skip takes offense or whatever. And this time he went over the line, and he basically uh, took a personal shot at Shannon Sharp, saying that basically Shannon was jealous because Tom is still playing his 40s, and he had to stop playing his mid-30s. And that Tom Brady was better than Shannon Sharp. And mind you, they played two different positions. It's a false equivalency, but that's a whole nother debate for me and my sports enthusiasts. The problem that I had, though, was that there was two problems I had. The first problem I had was I felt like Skip should have said that. And, you know, that's not how debates are supposed to happen. Um, you're not supposed to attack the person. Um, if you're attacking the person, that pretty much shows that you're losing the debate, right? But the second thing is, you know, as I was going through reading what people commentary about it, I was very alarmed at how many people, uh, men, women and men alike, um, especially in our community, were basically kind of admonishing Shannon because he showed his vulnerability. Because the thing that Shannon said in the midst of Skip attacking was, you really would disrespect me to prove, to try to d defend Tom Brady? I'm your colleague. You would if you would disrespect me in my career. I was a Hall of Fame. I wasn't no scrub. You would disrespect me to to defend him. And so when he said that, everyone watching that could see how offended Shannon was. And honestly, how hurt he was by what Skip said. And people were admonishing him for displaying that emotions. And this is what I'm talking about being a safe space. I mean, how many of us on this panel when you were growing up, when you got ready to cry when you was a little boy, were told Boys don't cry. Suck it up. Tough it out. Okay? Or when you became a man and something bothered you, you felt that you had to kind of, especially with working in education, um, you kind of had to suffer in silence that as a man, especially a black man, you weren't allowed to show that you were hurt or bothered by something or that you were overwhelmed. And so it's amazing. On one hand, I hear people talk about how men can be emotionally unavailable. But then on the other hand, when men do make themselves emotionally available, they get criticized for it. And so that's the type of thing that I think that we have to stop doing, um, especially in our in our African-American community. Guys, it ain't working. Sucking it up, not crying about it, sweeping the feelings on the rug is why a lot of men make choices later on or why they respond in violent ways because they can't articulate themselves. Because they've been suppressed, we've been taught to suppress our emotions, and we've been taught to just roll with it, or that we weren't tough enough or man enough, and then it blows up later on, and somebody ends up getting hurt, whether it's emotionally hurt or physically hurt, and so I just want us to stop that. I really think that that's something in our community that we have to stop. And we really need to create a space. Or how many times? I mean, we all know. I know me and John President on a couple of people who have taken their lives to the suicide. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, at what point did that person try to reach out? Because what people always say is, 
Oh man, I wish he had talked to somebody. Oh, he should, I wish he could have came and talked to me. Maybe they, maybe he tried to. And like as John said earlier, you kind of made him feel less than for having those feelings. Or made him make him feel less than adequate as a man for having those feelings. And everybody participates in toxic masculinity. There are men who participate in it. There are women who participate in it too. And we need to stop that so we create these safe spaces where people can just talk about it. And we also got to stop over-spiritualizing. I'm a man who feel like everybody else, but I'm going through my thing. I don't I don't want to hear churchy, uh, churchy rhetoric and colloquialisms that, have, that, that don't help me or don't comfort me. We got to stop doing too. And so we got to do a better job of creating these safe spaces for men, especially black men, to be able to emote without being looked at as we You know, Brian, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, black America in general, and, and I, I'm saying this broadly, there are some people in, in our community who I believe are really, really trying to allow us the space and trying to recognize this. But Black America is very infatuated with this unicorn black brother that uh, that is bulletproof, will stand up and fight as soon as soon as something happens, won't run away from a fight, even though it's, it, he probably should. Uh, you know, doesn't have feelings, but is still sensitive enough to hold you when you when you're tired. Uh, you know, will open up when needed, but shouldn't open up too much because if it does, that then that's not what men do. It's a lot of it's a it's a lot of contradictory uh, contradictory statements and narratives that we're getting and we're having to navigate through it. I'll tell you two quick two quick examples. Um, this this past this past summer, I was working a summer program in Baltimore, and we had a, a, a white family that came in and they were upset because their student uh, had gotten disciplined, and so they had been cussing me on the phone, all of the stuff here, and I'm in a professional capacity. So I had to kind of just, I had to to do what I had to do to stay professional and deal with it. So when they came in, I sat down while they were talking to me. And my team was like, you know, why you didn't stand up? And here's the thing. They came in with police. And had I stood up, I was a foot taller than everybody in their family. No matter how much I I wanted to stand up and, and show that, I knew that there's no way that anybody in that room would be able to accept me standing over them and matching their energy because I am a black man. And to be honest with you, uh, they were, you know, when I told my team that, they were like, yeah, we understand that now. But at the time, they thought I was sitting down because I was scared. No, I was sitting down because if I stand up over these people, the police are gonna gonna stand in front of me. They're gonna protect her. They're gonna protect everybody else with them because I'm the black man and I'm bigger than them. And I'm five nine, so Brian, I can't even imagine what you what you experience. You know what I'm saying? Or anybody anybody that's you know over six feet. Tasha, you over six feet? Uh, um, I think I'm like six six. That's what I'm. You know. <laughs> Either way, like I, I can't imagine what that's like. Another another situation I was with uh, an ex-girlfriend and we were at a queue party and a fight had broke out and the queues was clearing everybody out. They said everybody go home. And so as we're walking out, um my my girlfriend at the time she stopped because she just kind of wanted to watch the scene and I stopped with it. And it was no less than 22 cues standing in front of me, and they said, MF, you gotta go too. And so I said, All right, and I walked off. And we got outside and she was like, 
you just gonna let them talk to you like that? Absolutely, it's twenty two of them. Like, like, what, what Jackie Chan kind of brother do you think I am? Like, I can throw hands, but it's twenty two of them. I counted, and you want me to go go stand up to all of them at their party? I'm not gonna win the fight. I'm not going to win the argument in court because I was at their party. And ultimately, I'm standing up just so that I could prove to you I ain't no punk. When I know I ain't no punk. So what what, I, what I've gotten used to doing now is I'm going to do what's logical that's going to get me home. And you can call me a punk all you want to. The people who care about me don't care whether they don't care whether I, whether I, I did this or that as long as I got home safely and my dignity is intact because I got to live for more than just me. But it's a lot of folks that don't get that don't haven't gotten to that point, and they get pushed to to do things that are manly, when in actuality it's just really people are putting their their idea of what you should be on you, and you're living up you're living up to it often to our detriment. Hey, let me interject something. Right, one of the best scenes in cinema. I I, I love the arts and how art imitate life was in um, Harlem Nights. When Eddie Murphy character Quick was telling uh, Sugar Ray, played by Richard Pryor, "Oh, I'm gonna go kill, I'm gonna kill them all," and he was like, "Nah, don't do that, cause son, you know, you know Calhoun, he's a real gangster. He he'll kill you." And he's like, "What? I, I what I'm supposed to do? Cause I never around thinking I'm a punk." And he was just like, "What are we gonna put in the tombstone?" Oh, he was a great guy, but he wasn't no punk, <laughs> you know. So like, he, he urged him to be smarter about the situation, and that's one of my favorite scenes when it comes to using intelligence to go about a conflict another way. And I, and I just love that scene for that. Because we need to tell more of our kids, hey, live the fight another day or fight another way. Don't, don't go into something uh, being dumb and stupid just because you want to prove your manhood. I'm glad you all mentioned this. It's so funny. And I, I kind of want to tell a story and I kind of, I kind of don't want to tell the story. Because I was involved in a meeting last week about an incident, a basketball incident. And there were some parents that were saying they were telling their sons, their sons had to stand up. And so their son had to stand up because it was respect. Then you don't disrespect me. And and the principal was involved and she was talking to us and she said, well, you know, you have to realize what if a college recruiter was right there and watching your sons. And she was trying to, to tell how you can go in a different manner. Like there's a way that you can go about things. And I remember just being in this, this was last week. And I was like, that's the problem with our community sometimes is we think that we have to, you know, um, result in violence, you know, or you have to tap back. You got to say something to that person, um, but you can hold your dignity. It's a lot of ways. It's more than one way to skin a cat, literally. And sometimes just walking away. But like you said, people are like, oh, you're a punk or, you know, you're not man enough. So sometimes we've got to learn how we can de-escalate situations and handle situations in a total different manner because it comes back to knowing who you are. Josh, did you have anything? I would like to say something. Um, so this is kind of like something that's passionate to me. Um, and I think a lot of my passion for this comes from some of the challenges I had from moving from New England to Southwest Georgia and <laughs> many, many, many moons ago when there was just there was an obvious culture clash. Um, 
my perspectives were a lot different from what was common in the South. And there was a learning curve to all of that. So I've always been interested in the dynamics about that because uh, piggybacking off of the mental health thing, I went through a lot of mental stuff about not fitting in, feeling judged. And everywhere I went, I, John can tell you, I was, I was absolutely different from everybody in the room, from the way I talked to the things that I wore, my perspective. My, I was parented different than most people in the South. So that, you know, so that it was just totally a different situation. So through struggling through that, I decided to like pick through it because people that absolutely didn't like me or hated me at one time have grown to be some of my closest friends. So some of the things that I learned on the journey of navigating myself through that mental health journey is kind of why I'm passionate about that, this whole subject. So Think about this. The black family is struggling where we are because of our interpersonal skills. The people who live in your house and let's go outside of the house as an adult, you know, cohabitate. Let's go to the house you come from. In most cases, the houses we come from, it was either one or two siblings that you just didn't understand why God allowed you all to be related to one another. Um, you know, and then there's somebody in the house that you absolutely love. And then you look at that perspective, even, even from your parents, because we're, we're, we're individuals. So we have perspectives, whether we give voice to that or not, you sit back and be like, I kind of like mom a lot better than dad you know, in certain cases and, you know, things like that. So just making light of that whole dynamic of the home space. We never really learned in a lot of cases, the fundamentals of structure that it takes to make a family successful. So we leave the home and we have all of these broken experiences and these narratives that have been thrust upon us. But at, a, at the core level in the basics, there's a lot of soft skills and interpersonal skills that just aren't developed at a point where you can make a cohabitation system work and then add children to that and bring everybody into socialization. So it's kind of like we, we, we're, we're broken individuals and we, we're all coming from these mismantled families and we're trying to make a family and we're trying to work this out. So that's, it goes back to how men suffer in silence and women suffer in silence. It's the same dynamic across the board, but the children suffer. So we're talking about families, mom and dad being there, but we got to think about the majority of our community is made up of African-American males that have been raised by women. In most cases, those women who are raising these boys by themselves have the same interpersonal and soft skill problems that the men have. So the men don't hang around and the woman stays. Think about what happens to the young boy's psyche and his whole processing of his emotional capacity and his strength capacity and that whole how you balance all of that. He has no guidance for that. So a lot of men start taking on the emotional makeup of women.
and how women communicate, not shining any negative light on how women process things. But you have two types of women in most cases, one who are ones who are overly expressive and those who don't know how to express themselves. So think about the mother raising a boy that doesn't know how to express herself. She's communicating different, probably much like she was communicating with the father. I don't know how to tell you that I'm disappointed in you. I don't think your work ethic is at a certain point. And then being willing to listen also and have that exchange of ideas. So if mom's way of communicating is that way, when she's dealing with this male child, she's also communicating to him in ways that aren't direct, that aren't clear, or she's the opposite. She's overexpressive. She's very articulate, which goes into intimidation sometimes and insulting if you have to resort you seem like that's not working so think about it you releasing these boys into the community that have a a female emotional perspective but has the strength and the capabilities of being a protector and then when i leave the home that i'm having all these challenges even if there's probably love there i'm going into a world that absolutely hates that i exist so think about it. I'm going to be very responsive. I'm going to be defensive. Even if nobody really did anything to me, this is the fourth place I've been to today. And everybody's acting like they're scared of me. What the, what the hell is going on? So you get these, these things that seem very random, but they're far from random. There's a lot of uncommunicated things. There's a lot of uh, unbalanced perspectives. So I love being able to talk to men in these safe spaces which are barbershops in most cases cigar bars in most cases bars restaurants because what it happens i'm starting to learn too that we are very relational learners so when the doctor lived across the street the pastor lived next door the church mother lived four houses down the coach lived across the street even though you still had junkies and you still had undesirables in the community, it was all balanced because we all had something positive to look at. And then we had something to look at as others developed into more positive, reliable pieces of community. And that trajectory started becoming visible through relationships. So in the barbershops, men get to be in the space with He's an attorney. He's a doctor. He's a coach. Uh, he's a dope boy. She a booster. He's a booster. You know what I mean? But that whole community, you get to say to myself, I don't want to stoop to those levels that they do because that's eh, a little too risky. But I do want to, I want to be able to talk in a, in a conversation like Dr. Williams talks in a conversation and how he's concise and he comes from the science down to the relational part. And it makes me want to go read more and be able to approach my ideas from a scientific perspective, then wrap it around in how we can relate that to common sense. So, you know, all of the we learned from that. But the more we go to school, the bigger our paychecks get, the nicer our houses get, we don't interact in these hubs that allow others to grow from who you're growing into and vice versa because there's also a humbling because you get to see well dang i really kind of lost the common touch 
And that brings you back to a place of like, let me go pull up in the hood a little more. So I think we got to look at all of that. And these types of dialogues are great because it is that model of relational organizing and grassroots effect through community. Because we're having this conversation from all of these perspectives. There could be hundreds of thousands of people watching saying, like you said earlier, Aaron, like, I needed to hear. I didn't think about it like that. Like I said, you all, I'm just listening, but you made a lot of points and we can learn from each other. And and you're right. When you think about the barbershop, it does have, you know, with me being a single mom, shoot, I was in the barbershop with Dante. Shout out to Dante and McDonough. I was in there with him all the time and we had so many conversations. And you're right. And learning from each other and everybody comes in, um, even my son's coach um he created an athletes and barber space and what the guys did was they came in and it was a safe space for young men to talk and that was great because that's exactly what barbershops barber shops are they are safe spaces and then even having safe outlets like this is great um, that's why I missed my other podcast, What Women Crave, because we would have um, men come on. Brian came on at least once a month, and we talk to you all and get to know and hear what you all think, because you all are important to women. Um, before I change the subject, does anyone else want to comment? Does anyone have anything else they want to say before we go to our next question? Okay. So, okay. So, I have a question. You all are all in fraternities, and you all have mentioned them. Um, please tell us how important your fraternity and brotherhood is to you. Well, I, I guess I'll go ahead and start. Um, it's meant the world to me, especially the brotherhood aspect, just because, um, you know, people come through with statistics and everything like that to try to say, the majority of black men aren't doing this or aren't doing that, but that's just not the case with my faction. Um, and it's put me around some really extraordinary men who are really doing extraordinary things and who have a who have a who are walking in their purpose. And I think that's inspiring for someone like me. Um, just because, you know, growing up there's some things I didn't have. I didn't have siblings in the house with me, even though I come from a large family. Um, I didn't have my pops, but I had a lot of male figures, but it was just good to be in this space with a, a bunch of brothers who, uh, who, who who are trying to make an impact and make a difference and who genuinely really care about you. Now, not everybody. I mean, you know, you know everybody in fraternity, you're not going to get along with, and that's real. Um, but at the same time, uh, being in that circle, being in that mist, and just conversations that happen, service projects that have happened where we've worked together to mentor some young men or, or and things like that. But even just that, like, I still do mentoring on my own outside of my fraternity. But, you know, the, not that the seed was necessarily planted there, but it definitely was germinated through, you know, being in this bond, being this brotherhood, and then Whenever we have to get together for whatever reasons, reunions or service projects, whatever, it's just great, great being around uh, people who look like people who mostly look like me, who are trying to make a difference. So that's what it's meant to me. And I think we have to keep in mind that the initial start of 
these fraternities uh, wasn't like the start of other fraternities outside of the black community. Uh, the start of these fraternities was for the closeness and the protection in, in environments where uh, we weren't necessarily accepted, or if we were accepted, we were tolerated but not loved. And so, you know, building that community within your within your that small group, being strength for each other was important. And so, that same thing has to happen now. I know that um, you know when I was an undergrad, it was it, it was a lot it, it was a lot of fun, um, and it still is. It was a lot of fun. It was a, a, a lot of, you know, the things that we typically think about at college. But as I got older, I realized that these are these are men that I have been able to call on. I have been able to lean on. When, when things got rough, I was able to reach out to them. And then when things got rough for them, they were able to reach out to me. And so you you see as you get older that that valuable piece of the closeness and, and the love that you share with these brothers. And again, as Brian said, you know, you know, you got hundred thousands of brothers. You're not going to know all of them and you're not going to vibe with all of them, but you do have that connection that helps really bring you a lot closer. And one of the key things that's really important about Albany, especially coming through Albany state, your brotherhood, uh, your brotherhood can be strong, but because Albany has such a strong brotherhood as a whole, I can get along and, and I can rock with anybody who who's there. Right. Tosh is, is a Sigma. And I'm an alpha, and he and I can sit down and have dinner and talk about talk about brotherly things without necessarily letting our letters dictate how we view each other. You see what I'm saying? I have friend I have friends who who uh, you know are in every fraternity here in Albany. We were friends beforehand. We were friends after. A lot of the things that you see at other schools when people were beefing and all of that, we as we got older, we grew into that real grown man brotherly type vibe that you can share across fraternal lines. So, you know, I have my brothers, but I I have other men as well that I consider brothers, not with letters, but with love. You see what I mean? And so I, I, I think that that's something that's also important. And we got to be able to show that to, you know, our youth as well. A lot of these, you know, I'm going to get, I'm not going to get too personal with it, but I know people who are, who are, who grew up in the same household and rival gangs. How does that even happen? You see what I mean? They they're shooting at each other, and they got the same they they got the same grandma, they got the same grandfather, but because they they weren't taught how to how to build bonds and share those bonds. You got you got family that you can build bonds with, and you beefing, and that's the kind of thing that I, 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 I the fraternity has taught me a lot. One of the things that it's taught me is that you need to build the bonds with those that are around you and that those who rock with you. And use that bond to make your life better and to make their lives better, and you end up being stronger collectively. And I think we need to pass that on to our youth because that will help. That will help us at least mitigate some of the gang activity, some of the beefing that's happening, especially in the in, in these cities where you're gonna have to run into that person three, four times a day. Um, I am proud to be a sigma, and but. I guess the the oxymoron for me is people that know me. I'm kind of I've always been the lone shark. Like I just like dancing to my own music, and sometimes I just do it on purpose, just because I don't want to get used to following her. So you know, from being that type of person to like really just kind of like let me try this whole group thing. Um, I what I learned is collaborations and building coalitions. Um, through doing community work, 
that kind of showed me how, you know, you can't do it by yourself. Like you can't do it at a big level by yourself because there's people that you're going to need that have expertise that you don't have and that can make phone calls that you can't make. And you need that to be able to stretch out and do more. So I really started entertaining. I've always kind of thought about it because most of my close friends were affiliated or preparing to be affiliated. Um, it's just something I was never really just like a part of the whole group thing. But like I said, changing my perspective and really looking back through life and like some really impactful men had really poured into my life and, you know, taking inventory of it, they were sigmas and you no, know, it, it crossed all fraternal groups, but there was a high level of sigmas that I had some great relationships with. Even to this day, um, Dr. Hill, who is a phenomenal educator and amazing sigma, um, really just took me under his wing and the way he shares with me was impressive because you run into a lot of older men who still need the glory and can't teach you how to walk into it and grow into it because they still need too much of it for themselves. Dr. Hill is like the exact opposite. He's not going to tell you anything he's done unless it applies to the conversation or you ask it of him. So running into black men who... He, he silently supported who I was as a person. So that made a world of difference for me that when, when somebody of, when an elder looks at you and deals with you and doesn't try to manipulate you, change you or turn your directions for their benefit, you feel a real sense of like, they must really like me because they like listening to me. We have great conversations. And so now I'm kind of at his beck and word, you know, like, I honor him in that space. And then when I'm doing good, he pushes me forward. When I'm moving in the wrong direction, he kind of pulls me back and says, hey, here's another perspective to consider. So just really honoring that passing of the torch is, you know, another caveat of being in uh, these Greek organizations, especially, you know, in HBCUs, that bond, that connectedness, because all of the older men don't know how to pass the torch. But you got so many brothers across the world and across the United States that you'll find that type of um, mentoring uh, guidance if you're really genuinely seeking it. It's out there. And so, you know, I encourage black men to participate in collegiate education, the fraternities and everything, because it just balances your perspectives, especially in the world that we live in. So and being able to, you know, make a phone call or a brother see Phi Beta Sigma on your application or in the other brothers alpha, you know, seeing that down could be the difference between somebody actually giving you an opportunity and calling you for the interview on the day that the panel is built the right way. And, you know, it's just, it's all of that. Like you, like John was saying, these organizations were for protection and being able to buffer that resistance that we get from the outside world. You know, Taj, one thing, one thing that you, that you said that I think is very critical in that is that Dr. Hill and I'm sure other brothers as well, when you when you started going down the wrong path or if you started veering off to a way that was that was that was kind of dangerous, uh, you know, maybe philosophically or whatever, they'll pull you back. That's the tough part of brotherhood, because it's always good. To, it's always easy to support brothers when they're doing great. Right. When a brother is down or when a brother is dealing with some things and this goes back to the mental health piece. 
can you can you help put them back on the right track or can you support them as they get back on the right track and a lot of brothers a lot of brothers struggle with that especially a lot of the a lot of the older the older men struggle with that part they struggle with that part um and so it's really really good when you find the brothers that will tell you when you're being raggedy but also will tell you when you're doing right and vice versa and if you get when you get brothers like that and friends like that that's where the true brotherhood is sitting. Those who those who will support you in good and bad, triumph and disaster. And I and I would just like to add, you know, when you talk paying it forward, right? So when I was in college, um, I challenged our then president, Dr. Coach Holmes Shields, to kind of find a way to create these internships. Like I turned down an offer of the fam you to Colorado State because of the presidential scholarship and the internships they were talking about. But after my freshman year, it just seemed on the surface that they had a lot of internships ready for the natural sciences, but not so much the other disciplines And I was in business. And so I had a courageous conversation with Madam President about it. So she hooked me up, we're going to, we took this, uh, John was on the trip as well. We took this trip up to Morgan State. They had this um, uh, internship fair up there, right? At Morgan State. And so, um, their guy, and she told me, she said, now go get an internship. Like, she then put the ball back in my court. Met a guy, and he really was impressed with me. They didn't even, they were looking for science majors. I just happened to stop by a table to see what they were looking for. But he, he talked to me. Like, he had a conversation with me about my interest and goals, right, and what I want to do. And he said, well, son, I can tell you, we don't really have anything for business majors. He said, well, let me ask you one more question. He said, are you, at the time, I was not great. And he said, um, you know, are you thinking about pledging something, right? And I said, I am. But I said, I've been instructed. I mean, I shouldn't be probably tell too many people that out loud. He said, I don't know anybody in Georgia like that. You can tell me. So I talked to him an alpha. Kind of found out he was an alpha. He went back to California. I heard from him two days later. They created money in the budget so that I could come do an internship in California as a business intern working in their procurement department. Like he saw something in me that maybe I didn't even see in myself. And it just so happens he happened to be a member of the fraternity. I had no clue if I was going to be a member. I just knew I wanted to be. But he took that chance on me and he was in touch with me. Right? And he retired before I got out there. But he made sure that everything was in place for them to take care of me when I got there. And I did such a good job. I went back the second year when I went back, they had the money in the budget. He doesn't even he doesn't even realize how much that meant to me and how much confidence that gave me as a young as a young black man. Fast forward today, I have two, no, three. Can't something happen. No, I don't know what happened. Okay, you're going to come back and come back in? Okay, so I'm going to keep it going because I do want to ask you, John, and then we'll bring um, Brian back up. Um, I have some specific questions for you all. So, John, you teach at an ABHCB. Uh, I can't say historically black college, y'all. I can't say it. So you um, teach at a historically black college. What does that mean to you? specifically so growing up in albany um you know albany is one of those places where we're all we all are proud to say we're from albany 
but a lot of people measure their ability to to uh, their their success by their ability to leave all of it, right? They really measure it by that, and so um, it's kind of looked at as if you know when you if you come back to Albany, you fail. That's what a lot of people. That's the mindset a lot of people have. But growing up in Albany, one thing that I realized is Albany State in particular was very instrumental in almost everything I did uh, or everything that I was engaged in through high school and so forth. Um, they had programs at the time where you could you could do internships as high school students working in Social Security, uh, working uh, with law clerks and so forth and so on, and getting us that that early engagement that allowed us to be able to see our paths to our futures. And so I, I, that made me really fall in love with Albany State. It made me fall in love with Albany State so much that when I got ready to go to school, there were two options. There were two main options. There were a lot of options out there, but there were two main ones, FAMU and Albany State. Um, the president at the time said that she was going to be dedicated to retaining talent in Southwest Georgia. And so she created the uh, presidential scholarship with some of the benefactors who donated tons of money to Albany State to be able to do this. And I said, well, you know what? Albany State has, has, got me, has, has been with me throughout this entire route. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick by them. And so I uh, went through Albany State. And then when I got to Florida State, I realized how severely lacking, and this is not a knock to Florida State or any other school that's not an HBCU, but how severely lacking their focus was in terms of helping a lot of the a lot of the black students get the opportunities that other students were getting. There, there was a lack of mentorship. There was a lack of pre uh, preparedness. And at the graduate level, a lot of students that were coming in were having a hard time really, really integrating as well. But Albany State had prepared me. So I knew that I wanted to go back to an HBCU and do the exact same thing that was done for me. And so this is my way of paying it forward. And, you know, I thought it was going to be a short stint. Um, it ended up being 13 years so far. And I love every bit of it. When I tell you I love every bit of it, um, I, I really am enjoying it. Um, and so really quickly, uh, one of the key areas that I'm focusing on now, um, students getting prepared for medical school, dental school, uh, pharmacy school, and graduate school. Because a lot of students, uh, especially our, our students, they're not they're not exposed to things like a PhD or MD. They're just told, if you go into sciences, go be a doctor. And a lot of that is just a lack of information. I, when I was growing up, it was go be a doctor. And I just knew I had to be a, a doctor, a physician, right? And then I get to, get, to, get to undergrad and I realized there's so many other options and I don't like dealing with death and blood. So I probably shouldn't necessarily go into medicine if I know that that's something I can't train myself out of, but that 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 opening of of my mind to those other options with people like Dr. McCrary and Dr. Oral Lockley Jones and, and all of these professors that said, look, you have this is this is a buffet of things that you can do. Pick the one that works for you and let's get you on track for that. That's what I want to do for students now. So one of the things that I do uh, working with students now is one, helping to make sure they're fully informed of what they can do what opportunities are out there so that they're making intelligent and informed decisions. They're not trying to go to med school because that's the only thing they know how to be, but that's the only way they know how to help. Them. But two, I also want to make sure that these areas, these fields are getting quality students uh, so that 
the overall understanding of Black America through these fields, Black American medicine, Black American healthcare, Black American pharmacy and, and drug development, Black American research. I want our students to be at the table so that they can understand, so that the, the world can understand what we bring to the table and can understand our issues as well. And a quick example that I, I, I want to I want to leave you with: one of my former students is at PCOM right now. A group of a, a group of minority students at PCOM just published or, or getting ready to publish a paper that shows that pulse oximetry. So when they measure how much oxygen is in your blood, pulse oximetry met, uh, monitors don't accurately measure dark skin. Now imagine what that, that's something that's very small. You go in there, you don't even notice it, but it doesn't accurately measure oxygen levels in, the, in, in, in uh, going through dark skin. So what that means is something that's so fundamental that is usually checked as soon as you get to the doctor is an inaccurate for a lot of patients. Nobody would focus on that if it wasn't for, for more black, black people being at the table saying, hey, this is something we need to focus on. This is something we need to look at. And so that's just one small example, but I want to make sure that we're increasing the amount of quality students that we're getting to these areas so that they can make the differences that if I had been a doctor, I would have been trying to make. We thank you for that because that's changing our lives. So we really thank you and thank your students as well, John. And we hear the passion in your voice when you start talking about your students. So of course, y'all, in January, we need to come back and talk even more about that because I hear your passion. I um, love, love them to death, man. I, I can tell. I hear your passion. And I know how it feels to love some students because I got my kids. I even got an Instagram for them. Post them all the time, y'all. <laughs> so listen, um, okay, we're coming to Brian now. You teach CTAE. I see your passion for teaching as well um, because I see you post and, and, and you're being a leader and you're taking leadership courses. So what does that mean to you? So one of the things, reasons why I got into CTAE was to help prepare students f find their passion and match their personality to find a career that it wouldn't feel like they get to go to work for, right? Um, and I and I did this because I had a career that paid me good money before I came to education that I hated and couldn't stand. Money was great. But I didn't like it, couldn't stand it, and, there, and I wasn't going to be successful in it just because of the fact that I couldn't stand it. And I felt like, you know, nobody really should have to go through that. I mean, there's a lot of people who are working in careers that they don't like, and they're not, and they're not that successful then because they felt because someone told them that's where they should have been, versus them really reaching within themselves to figure out what it is. So my passion is pre uh, presenting um, a plethora of options to these students and educating them about what's out there. So one of the things I do, I do a career inventory assessment uh, that was created by this guy named uh, John Holland back in 58, which matches their personality interests with um, <clears throat> with the different types of careers. They got it broken down into six personality types. Um, one other thing that I do is uh, I bring in uh, career speakers to speak to the kids. Um, before the pandemic, we, uh, we had quite a few guest speakers to come in and we even took um, a couple of field trips to try to broaden their horizons and open their minds. Um, and so because I don't want them to have to go through what I had to go through to get where I am. Like, 
I want I want to try to see if I can keep them to take the least amount of detours possible to arrive at, at their journey to destination, right? I wish someone would have told me back when I was in school, hey, either you need to go into education or you need to go into a STEAM career. Like I was very great at math. I still am. And no one ever told me about, like, for example, my son's AAU coach is a data architect. I even know, I've never even knew that was a position till I met him. You get what I'm saying? So I know if I didn't know it, I know a lot of these kids that I deal with that don't know it as well. So um, I'm trying to do that. Now that I'm teaching computer science, um, I got my students involved in this national video game design contest um, by a company called Games for Change, students, um, Student Challenge. And so I got some kids that work with after school and we'll work on developing um, video games sitting around um, social change, such as uh, climate control, um, uh, video game utopia, trying to decrease bullying online, things like that. But just trying to open their horizons to say, hey, you have so many other options. You don't want to, you don't like uh, speaking in front of people. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a doctor. You know, uh, you don't even have to be educated if you don't want to, like, Giving them options, but not even just those options of which maybe they go to school for. We talk putting them in front of people who are welders, putting them in front of people who are cosmetologists. You know, truth be told, if I can go back and do it again, I probably would be. I probably own my own barbershop. I probably went back and had to cut hair. No lie, because I love going to the barbershop. Every time I go, I'm there an extra hour or two. You know, I just love the, the atmosphere around it. Uh, and so I would have, I probably would have went and did that. Like you don't necessarily have to go to college, you know, um, and get in all this debt, right? Or you can go get your CDL, eight weeks, <laughs> you have you have a skill for life. You get what I'm saying? But nobody was around to to to, to show us that we were young. Everyone just kept pushing college. I want to show these students and kids that hey, you don't even have to go to college, but you can make a success for yourself. You can create wealth, generational wealth for yourself. I just want to put options for them and let these students pick the options that works best for them. Thank you so much. I believe in CTAE, you all. I'm a CTAE teacher and I taught various CTAE courses. And it's really important, like you said, and having those kids understand you don't have to go specifically to college. There is your technical college that you could go to. So having those outlets and computer science is major. That's a big, big outlet. So kudos to you for teaching computer science. In fact, in my head, I'm thinking I've got to have I want you all on the panel to talk more about mental health together. But we're going to have to do monthly so I can each one of you all one month come in and talk to you all specifically about everything you're talking about. So we're going to come back to you, Tosh. And Tosh, you are an entrepreneur. And we want you to tell us about your businesses and tell us about how passionate you are in helping the community. And again, I'm going to have each one of you all, if you're willing, come and talk specifically individually. But we need to let them know what you all do. Well, Tosh, you're, let's see, I think you're on mute. Hold on. I do, I do a couple of things. Um, I'm a barber by trade. Uh, my degree is in speech and theater. Um, but I love my community. So I've kind of transitioned a bit from behind the chair into uh, political contracting. So I run the campaigns that knock on your doors, the posts you guys make about why do they keep coming to my house? 
uh i run those campaigns we uh the last contract that i had that just ended last week um we were across seven states um so we do it at a high level uh, i also have a nonprofit. where well, i run a nonprofit here in town called albany cares um so i guess the long and the short of it because i could tell you a lot of different things that i do but we will definitely be here a while um but the overarching idea that I have is from all my experience behind the chair was more so like a social experiment. Uh, I met so many people down through the years, serviced them, uh, their counselor, their preacher at times, their friend, their brother. Uh, I've taken that knowledge and uh, went into the zone of community organizing. And I'm just now learning that that was a term a position and, and all of that but it's something i've been passionate about for years so what i do now um is we're trying so we've been our nonprofit is finally getting uh grant money to be able to really do the work at the level that we desire to do it and just from education to voting civic engagement uh economic mobility food does everything starts at the individual's ability to procure, uh, solidify a living, a path of direction, uh, a friend circle and a family. I think it is uh, Proverbs, Proverbs, hold on, let me see, because I, I, I don't like to lie on the Bible. Uh, but I think, yes, yeah, Proverbs 11 and 14, there's safety in the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom in that area. So what I'm learning from, and I mentioned this earlier, from a relational organizing standpoint we have so many so many benefits we learn from each other we grow from each other we're inspired by each other so now we're putting together a model that's more of labor force development and it talks about everything that everybody's talked about tonight uh, showing people the myriad of opportunities that are out there for career fields some are fast track some are longer uh, some have different pay, but if we can get people to a point of earning from a place of inspiration, what you hope to be, want to be, uh, aspire to be, whether it's entrepreneurial or corporate, if you knew that there was 11,000 possibilities on each side, whether it's creative or whether it's corporate, you would have something to almost look at like a Christmas list. Like, I could be one of them. I could be one of them. So. When I do these canvas projects, the demographic that I employ in most cases is I do I do kind of like the Navy SEAL type work of political canvassing. I work in the areas where it's extremely hard to mobilize people because of their socioeconomic level, their education level, their trauma, their experiences. Those areas are usually black or Latino ethnic communities where the opportunities are somewhat castrated for them. Those are the hardest people to mobilize, to get them out to vote, to do the census, uh, to get health care, to stay on top of it. So what we've done with our organization is we kind of went under the ground because we consider ourselves grassroots. So now we're under the ground and we want to develop a labor force. In the labor force development is what John was talking about is internships and uh seminars and walkthroughs and open houses so the last contract well i'll say this 
to date, my most successful contract, we interview 820 something people or 40 something people, 840 something people, hired 424 in this community, paying them $20 an hour. What I experienced, because, you know, that is extremely high for the medium income and opportunities for people that don't have diplomas or college degrees. They never would see $20 an hour unless they're like literally giving their lives away. So what we had to do to develop them to be able to do the work and the inspiration that the pay created for them and the technological training that we had to provide for them to be able for us to use the data aggregation tools that we use from apps to software. We had to like fast track them through it like and. The $20 an hour was enough to keep them attentive and be like, okay, so I do got to check my email every 30 minutes. Yeah, I do got to go on here and learn how to create a Google Doc and create a spreadsheet. So what we figured out is if we just take the funding that we've been recently released and start developing this labor force, creating these partnerships with these local businesses from PNG, um, Miller Brewing, all of the leading industries. and we can take people that never would have ever had an opportunity to be in those spaces and just bring them through there and be like, hey, listen, look what people are doing. And after that, that's more motivation for them to attend our trainings, take it serious. And once you start developing people and they have a focus, they've seen it. And then it's like, I, I wonder why she's been driving that nice car and living over there. She work here. Now you start connecting those communal dots and now people is like, hey, I'm going to keep going to the train and I'm going to keep developing. And then we can also turn around and provide that service for those businesses. Like, hey, we got a group of 18 interns that can do the clerical side. They can do data aggregation. They, they haven't been to school. They haven't been to this, but they have potential. So we have relationships with Albany State and Albany Tech through some things that we just do in the community ongoing coalition and collaboration building where now when we start develop developing them with the basic everyday skills to to be employed at above minimum wage level when you teach them that and then you have these relationships it's like okay i took you to png i took you to uh miller we took you to the school system and now you see possibilities here's how we're going to direct you in that zone and once you see the possibilities exist now we can connect the dots to Albany Tech, to Albany State. And now when you raise the level of the quality of life for people, the aspirations that they that they come from and pull from, now the conversation of voting and being civically engaged and mobilizing is a much easier conversation because in those pools of people, that is common behaviors. That's the culture once you get a house, once you have a mortgage and you, you, you're building your credit, the voting thing is all wrapped in that because you want your taxes to stay low. You want the things that the community and the government is supposed to provide. They have a personal buy-in to that philosophy. So we want to go up under the grass and really impact people at a socioeconomic level that in turn creates the civic engagement and a desire to learn and grow and be involved in what most people tabooly uh, say politics, it has nothing to do with politics. It's the way the structure is developed and you either benefit from it or you suffer from it. When you get in a place where you can think and grow, then you can be engaged in it.
So thank you so much, Tosh. It's amazing how all of this is just connected, right? Um, and, and of course, like I said, we'll have, hopefully you all will come back and we'll have more conversations in January. Um, and, I, and I'll be talking to other people just about investing and Mrs. Preston, we thank you so much for joining our conversation tonight and being really actively involved, you all. Um, that's AKA Madam President and she empowers women. Um, so it's just amazing to have this community and I love providing um, a, a soft spot and a, and a nice safe space for men to talk. I think that's really important. So um, we'll be doing more of this, you all. And I hate we have to end it, but of course we've gone over our hour. Um, but the mental health aspect was so, so important until we had to touch on that. But then again, this is men of excellence. And as people can see, they can see why I called you all men of excellence because you are walking truly in your gift. Um, John, thank you so much for staying in Albany. Uh, I love Albany. Like I said, my dad's from Albany. I went to Albany State. Um, my dad's an alpha with you all. And, and I just thank you all so much for everything. Brian, thank you so much for, uh, for the opportunity for young kids and teaching them about careers. You too, John. I saw about your STEM camp. We're going to talk more about this. Tosh, you are just literally helping our community and not just young people, but older people as well and adults. So we thank you all. And I'll let, leave you all, everyone, um, just a moment. Anything you want to say to anyone before we leave? I don't like how much y'all have been talking about Alphas tonight, but I appreciate, I appreciate y'all <laughs> and, and the work that you do. And most importantly, I shared this with Aaron. I really want to thank you uh, because in the day that we live in now, there's not a lot of women who are comfortable enough with their, their sales, their, their success, their possibilities to be humble enough to create a safe space for men. And it's so saturated with honor that I'm elated to be a part of such a situation because everything about your rhetoric and your energy is saying, no, I want to hear it. I think other people, women, men, children need to hear it. And that is that embodiment of the yin and the yang that every man needs from a woman. Because you, even though this this is platonic, this is friendship, community building, your energy as our opposite still says, right on, King, go ahead. And that's a lot of what most men are not exposed to, and they suffer in silence. Their mother didn't know how to do it. The aunts don't know how to do it. Their girlfriends don't know how to do it. Their cousins, their nieces. So to find a woman who's created the space from the consciousness that it's necessary and it's valuable to you, hats off to you. And thank you to the women who come from that same pedagogy. Thank you so much. I respect you all. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I to be honest with you, Tosh said everything I, I would have wanted to say. Um, Aaron, I thank you for involving me in this. Um, and I look forward to having more conversations with you on a number of topics. Um, and so whenever you need to call me. And yeah, I mean, and I, and I just picked up, I mean, this is a great forum. Um, I've been enlightened by so much, especially with, you know, the work that, you know, these two gentlemen have been doing 
Um, it's inspiring. It's needed. Um, and that comes with a lot of sacrifice. I don't think people really realize um, on the back end because these men are doing the work. And when you're doing the work, you're sacrificing time from your family. You're sacrificing, you know, um, uh, fleshly pleasures and so to speak and things that you, you know, would like to do to unwind and things to, to, to invest and sow into people because that's basically what you all are doing. So I just appreciate, you know, being a part of this platform. Aaron, thank you for always having me on or whatever. Um, and, you know, I thank you too, brothers, for, for, for committing to doing this um, because it's much needed in our community. I thank you all so much. So many people need to hear your story. This is not in vain, I promise you. So we all thank you all so much um, until 2023, um, which is in a couple of weeks, you all. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful night. And please take care of yourself. Bye. <clears throat> Absolutely. Thank you. Take care, guys. Take care.